Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Global Exchange on the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode that we are recording on September the 7th, I'm talking with Toronto Metropolitan University professor Patrice Tutil and Carleton University professor Stephen Azee about statesmen, strategists, and diplomats, Canada's prime ministers, and the making of foreign policy. Their new book that Patrice edited and to which Stephen was one of the 15 contributors. Patrice and Stephen, welcome to the Global Exchange. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having us. For listeners, published earlier this year by UBC Press, Statesman, Strategists and Diplomats looks at the 15 prime ministers who formed governments after winning an election. In a couple of cases, Sir John A. Macdonald with Alexander Mackenzie and Stephen Harper with Justin Trudeau, the approach is comparative. Statesmen, Strategists and Diplomats is meticulously researched. For those wanting more, there are over 1,200 footnotes drawing in both original and secondary sources. I know it was a big help to me to track some things down which I had never seen before. Statesmen, Strategists and Diplomats is the 14th volume in the C.D. Howe series in Canadian political history. The series is directed by eminent scholars John English, who did the Trudeau and Pearson biographies, and Bob Bothwell, who's done a whole series of books, including a great book on C.D. Howe and a book I use on Canada-U.S. relations, which I think is still the go-to source. So let's get started. Patrice, how did this book come about? Well, for me, Colin, uh, this is really uh, an extension of my work in trying to understand the evolution of the office of the prime minister in this country. You'll remember that 25 years ago, when Jean Chrétien uh, was prime minister, there was quite an outcry that the uh, office of the prime minister had suddenly become uh, dictatorial, that suddenly the prime minister's office was too powerful. Um, and you know, a few books were written to that effect. And when that when that came out, when that controversy broke out, it really rankled me in the sense that as a historian, I'd always thought the prime minister in Canada was uniquely powerful, that in fact, in my mind, there was not anything new in the way Jean Chrétien practiced the office of the prime ministership, uh, that this really was one of the most important features of our system, and that, in fact, it went back to John A. Macdonald. So over the years, I've directed a couple of books. I've uh, had the pleasure of editing a book on John A. Macdonald. I edited a book on Louis Saint Laurent. I've written a book on the origins of prime ministerial power in Canada. And the one of the things that came out of that one book was, the again, the centrality of foreign policy. One of the reasons why the Canadian prime minister is so uniquely powerful, even in the Westminster system, is because our prime ministers, from John A. Macdonald on, from, I should say, from 1867 until Mackenzie King in 1946, our prime ministers, with the exceptions of a few months, were de facto the ministers of external relations. They handled it themselves in their small offices. Over time, of course, it expands and we have the establishment in the Department of External Affairs in 1909 under Wilfrid Laurier. Um, but until 1946, the prime ministers run the shop. Louis Saint Laurent is appointed in 1946, but lo and behold, the prime ministers still run most of our foreign policy. 
The ministers handle secondary affairs. So why is that? I wanted to have this book on my shelf. How is it that the prime ministers have shaped foreign policy with a minister or without a minister? And so uh, I decided to launch launch the ship, invite people to uh, to write an individual chapter on each prime minister. So it, it really, it's for me, it's really approaching it from the subject of the prime minister. What is it that makes our Canadian prime minister so uniquely powerful, even in a minority situation, so uniquely powerful, even compared to other Westminster systems? You know, you you, you also include in the book a, a quite a, a poignant tribute to somebody I worked with, Greg Donahue, when yes. I was managing the historical division as part of the public affairs group at Global Affairs. And you know, Greg had, had done a lot of work on this as well. And I, I just want to note that I thought your tribute to him was uh, both poignant and appropriate. It was very sad to see him uh, pass away in the summer of 2020. And the book is dedicated to him. You said that it was in part a conversation with him that, that led you to, to move to this book. Yes, yes, because why? Well, he was also has very similar interests to mine, and uh, it was a it was a, a perfect coordination of interests that uh, that gave birth to the book. Well, I certainly remember as you talk about the dictatorial prime minister. I remember the uh, book that Jeffrey Simpson wrote with yes. the picture on the front cover. That uh, I think it was Doug Gibson who was the both editor. I think at McClellan and Stewart, and it was it was uh, an arresting as Jeffrey told me. It was it was not the cover that he he would have chosen. But he said it certainly sold books and it, it underlined the point that you've made about the centrality of the prime minister and indeed, as some argue, uh, the, the dictatorship in some cases. Simpson's I, book. I think I wouldn't go that far, but certainly well, people like uh, Donald Savoie and. Exactly. It needs more definition. Yes. And I think it needs I think, more refinement. You, yeah. And I think you do it quite right. And I think that I found one of the interesting comments when you said that Stephen Harper remarked after being in office a bit that had realized how important external relations, external affairs was to that office. It's very, it's very important. And as I, I make, I make the argument in the book, uh, it goes back to Johnny McDonald. I mean, we cannot ignore the fact that Johnny McDonald was critically involved. I will make the argument that he created the, the Atlantic Triangle, that he literally muscled himself he muscled Canada in that relationship between Britain and the United States and decided yeah. to open that third corner. It was it was through the strength of his personality, also obviously his intelligence um, in, in, in creating the Atlantic Triangle. And of course, you know, I invited Barbara Messamore to write that chapter on Johnny MacDonald, and I asked her to include relations with Indigenous people out West because... And maybe people will will, will want to argue about this, but I think it's important that you know in Canada in 1867, you know the, one of the first things on the agenda was to acquire Rupert's land to negotiate the deal with with the Hudson's Bay Company and with um, the British government to acquire Rupert's land. We do that in 1869. And immediately, the McDonald administration starts to negotiate uh, with various uh, indigenous peoples out west. And I see that as part and parcel of negotiating with foreign entities. It stops with that. I mean, once the numbered treaties are completed by the late 1870s, uh, mostly carried out by Alexander Mackenzie, uh, that becomes a domestic issue. But in John A's day, it was not a domestic issue. It was partially a domestic issue, but it was also about negotiating with people who were not part of Canada originally. So I, I Barbara Messamore did a wonderful job uh, um, with that chapter. You point out, I think Barbara did a very good job, and she also, the talking about 
the, the negotiations in Washington where McDonald, as you point out, is negotiating as much with the British as yes. with the Americans, trying to preserve Canadian interests. I thought that trilateralism comes out extraordinarily well. And it basically goes all the way through. You think of Pearson down in Washington as our ambassador and later foreign minister. So no, I think you do this extremely well. So you talked about Barbara and of course, Stephen is with us. So how did you choose your fellow contributors? Well, thank you for asking because it's such an important part of this, of, of this enterprise. You know, edited collections can be really good and they can be really bad. For me, always it's a, it's a it's a delicate balance the first thing i want of course is expertise you want people who really know their stuff but you also want people who have something to say uh and that's you know a lot of people have no stuff they're experts at stuff but they don't really have much to say i want to have people who have things to say so uh that matters a lot i like to bring in historians i like to mix historians and political scientists that's really a function of my of my existence, if I dare say. I mean, I was trained, I was trained as a historian. I worked in government for 20 years. I teach public administration in a political science department, but my heart is still in history. Uh, so I like to mix it up a little bit, bring in historians, bring in political scientists. Um, I like to have some diversity of views. I like to have people from coast to coast as much as I can. Uh, I like to have generational mixes. I think that my eldest uh, contributor to this book is, I don't want to embarrass him, but it's not embarrassing. He's, a, he's in his 80s, or he's approaching his 80s. My youngest one is in her early 30s. So I, it's nice to have a, a diversity of views like that. Um, and, but you know, it's getting those special people who are also available to do the work. And, and that matters a lot. And that's what gets me, uh, you know, to Stephen Atzi, uh, who's here with me today. Uh, here's a guy who's written expertly on various parts of the Liberal Party, who's also written brilliant book on Canadian-American relations. Uh, I, I'd known Stephen because I invited him to write for my book on the Louis Saint Laurent. He did a brilliant job. So it was natural that I asked him again to write, and he did a brilliant chapter on a challenging topic, which is the Paul Martin foreign policy. Well, well, well let's step in here and let Stephen uh, say a few words, because yes, Stephen, you did write, I thought, a very good chapter on Paul Martin. And I think it's appropriate that we talk about it this week, because with the G20 meeting, in uh, in Delhi this weekend, you know, Paul Martin, I think, is certainly one of the, along with uh, Summers, Larry Summers, is really the, the godfather of the, the the G20 movement. And now you you say of uh, Paul Martin that he was thwarted in his ambitions, and I, I think that's true in terms of electoral. But he also had international ambitions. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about why you felt he was thwarted? Isn't that a good question? There, there are several reasons, some beyond his control, but some very much within his control. Um, one problem was that Martin set out a very ambitious agenda. So part of thwarted ambitions is the ambitions themselves. Uh, he was going to overturn Canadian foreign policy. He was going to make Canada into a global leader on a number of fronts. He was going to restore our relationship with the United States, which had suffered in the Chrétien years. Uh, and so it was a, a very long, very ambitious agenda that he began with. 
Uh, he also inherited a scandal, uh, the sponsorship scandal from the Chrétien years. And so Martin had imagined himself focusing on foreign policy as prime minister, but instead his attentions were turned immediately to the domestic scene uh, and to try trying to save the Liberal Party in the midst of a scandal. So he had very little time for foreign affairs. Uh, a complicating factor in all of this is Martin's decision-making style. He thrived on argument. Uh, Martin wanted people, he wanted to bring together a large number of people and have them argue for an hour, for two hours, for a day, for two days, for a weekend, for a week. Uh, and from that robust argument with some very articulate people, uh, an intelligent policy would emerge. Well, that served him really well when he was the Minister of Finance. Uh, mm -hmm. Not so well when he was uh, prime minister, because when you're prime minister, you, you're not just preparing a budget and a fall economic statement, you're involved in thousands of issues. And so this constant arguing uh, meant that government slowed down, and particularly on the foreign policy front, where, which had to be pushed aside so that he could deal with domestic issues. So the result was a man with a very lengthy agenda who was unable to really get to most of the items that he, he wished to pursue. No, I think that's right. And certainly that was my personal experience because he appointed me to head up what was the new secretariat at the embassy in Washington, because I think he had he'd taken the pulse of the premiers from his time as minister and he felt that the embassy could do more. And so he appointed a parliamentary secretary just for Canada-US relations, the secretariat within Privy Council office where, for example, Roland Harris worked. And then I went to Washington and I uh, had a, a major group that worked with the premiers and uh, and I thought that, that that whole approach was correct. But as you say, he got diverted and we saw things um, like ballistic missile defense and other issues where it just, uh, things didn't work out the way we thought they would. And so I, I, I agreed with your assessment that he was thwarted, uh, but I thought that his instincts in part inherited from his father were, were essentially correct. I would agree with that. Uh, I'm certainly sympathetic to to what he wished to do, uh, disappointed that he didn't accomplish more of it. No, you know, he, he was a liberal internationalist. And, and that takes me to my next question, <laughs> which is going to be you, Patrice. And your your chapter and the title of your chapter on Robert Gordon, which I also thought was excellent, a, a great read about what you call the rise of conservative internationalism. So I'd like you to define conservative internationalism and how it's different from liberal internationalism, which is a term we, we use much more frequently than certainly conservative internationalism. Well, conservative internationalism is the unknown twin of liberal internationalism. And I emphasize, Colin, I did not invent this term, okay? <laughs> but it has never been applied to Canadian foreign policy. You know, we in international relations theory, we sort of see two major schools, right? There's the realist school and there's the liberal internationalist school. Anybody who's worked in foreign policy or studied it closely or not even that closely will recognize that there is no such thing as an either or. You're not a realist and or uh, and, or an, uh, a liberal internationalist. There's always, you're always somewhere in the middle. It, it's a I see it as a spectrum and some people move a little bit more towards the realism and then they move back to liberal internationalism or, you know, they sort of find their, their, their grounding in the middle. It's not a question of black and white. There's always a, a middle ground somewhere. And it really depends on the prime minister. I would hold, it depends on the prime minister where the country's foreign policy, where Canada's foreign policy will lie. Now, Robert Borden is a particular problem in 
Canadian foreign policy. I'll, I'll just to remind our listeners, Robert Borden, uh, Halifax uh, fellow, uh, becomes leader of the uh, of the official opposition in 1900, is elected in 1911, defeats Wilfrid Laurier in a major election uh, on, on two major issues. Number one, his unconditional support for the British military buildup and his defeat of the free trade agreement, the reciprocity agreement that Laurier had negotiated with the Taft administration. Borden is unknown today, practically unknown. He's known and is remembered as the prime minister who, who led Canada during the Great War, during the First World War. But I think that he has made a unique contribution. And his contribution really can be identified, I argue, as conservative internationalism. So here's what I mean. Uh, a conservative internationalism is an internationalism that is a little bit more... Uh, instructed by realism. And what happened to Robert Borden in 1917, particularly after Vimy, is that he adopted a much rougher line with the empire, with the British government, in saying that this is not happening ever again, that Canada will lead its army as much as it can within its abilities, and that Canada will be in charge of its foreign policy from now on. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm making it a, a very coarse case. He's a lot more subtle than I am. But that is exemplified in his attitude towards the empire. It's also exemplified in his attitude towards the Treaty of Versailles. At Versailles, he insists that Canada will sign the peace treaty on its own. Yes, as part of the British Empire, but Canada has a line and he has his signature. What does this mean? It means that on one hand, he is realist. He sees the world in terms of enemies, in terms of friends. He is an internationalist, however, by also accommodating the need to be a part of a multilateral organization, such as the League of Nations. Robert Borden will insist that Canada has its own representative in Washington, D.C. Uh, now, he was thinking in terms of having an office inside the British embassy. We didn't have that before. We didn't have that. We, we basically spoke through the British ambassador. Borden says, no, we need to have our own presence in Washington. We need our own man. He wasn't thinking about women. We need our own man in Washington. In fact, he was so good on this and so insistent on this that the British government actually offered him the role of a British ambassador to Washington so that he could represent both Britain and Canada. But anyway, he insisted on that. He insisted, he was, although he was very much in favor of multilateralism in the sense of the League of Nations, he's a realist. He wants solid relations with the United States. He's also adamant uh, with the Americans in his opposition to Article 10, Article 10, which would uh, uh, commit Canada to defending any other member of the League of Nations who had been aggressed by, by a neighbor or by a foreign country. He's against that. So my, my point is that he's a realist. He is also a multi- uh, lateralist, but he, there's a cutting edge to it that is not liberal. I'll give you another example. Canada sends uh, a military detachment to Siberia on our own. All right, there's a, there's an opposition to the Bolshevik government in Moscow, but uh, people had talked about sending uh, you know some military reinforcements to the white the white forces. Canada actually says, well, we're going to send a we're going to send a detachment to Siberia. He didn't have to do it. Had Canada not done it, nobody would have cared. In fact, they saw no action and they quickly came home because it was really cold. Um, so the, there's a progression. 
Robert Borden, I think, broke the mold uh, to a degree that has not been sufficiently appreciated, I don't think. And to understand his evolution, I think that it's very helpful to see him not as a realist, not as an internationalist, certainly not as a liberal internationalist, but as a conservative internationalist. I, I'm hoping I make my case uh, in my chapter. <laughs> no, I, I think you do. But I, my question to you next to then, would you put somebody like Brian Mulroney or Stephen Harper as a conservative internationalist? They're, they're balancing the, the, the hardcore domestic issues as well as internationalism. And as you point out, the commitment part of uh, Mulroney. I, I, I to, think, uh, yes, I, I agree with you completely. I, I, um, I think that with Robert Borden, you see the birth of a new strain in Canadian foreign policy thinking. Diefenbaker will certainly be one of those uh, people, and Brian Mulroney, I think, will bring it to its apogee. I think there is uh, a question as to whether Mr. Harper's foreign policy would fit into a conservative internationalism. I frankly doubt it, uh, but we could have a big argument about that. Um, but certainly, I think that uh, John Diefenbaker and Brian Mulroney were very much continuing in the line of, of Robert Borden. No, well, I think much, again, for, for listeners, there's so much in this book to explore and these new themes and, and, and new ideas, the, the different ways of looking at things that, that you've done, for example, with conservative internationalism, I think another reason why you want to read this book. Stephen, let me turn back to you, because you were involved in an earlier survey of experts who ranked prime ministers. Tell me how that turned out. Yes, uh, my colleague in the history department at Carleton, Norman Hilmer, and I have twice ranked uh, the Canadian prime ministers for Maclean's magazine. And I should say this wasn't our ranking. We compiled a, a group of experts, more than 100 experts, uh, political scientists, historians, journalists, and so on, uh, and asked them for their feedback. And we, we compiled that. And what we found was that consistently, the two times that we did this, the top three are Mackenzie King, Laurier and McDonald, although the order changes each time you do these surveys, uh, but those are always the top three. And our conclusion from that was that what what the experts are looking for are transformative leaders, but also cautious leaders. So there is this paradox. It's it's a fragile country. Uh, so the transformation has to proceed very, very cautiously. And this is what hurt someone like Brian Mulroney in our surveys. Um, through the Meech Lake Accord and Charlottetown Accord, uh, the experts thought that he had really strained national unity. Uh, so it keeps him out of that top tier. No, and I think as, if, if I recall, you know, I have the greatest respect for Norman Hilmer. He was one of my go-to people on, on Canada-US relations. Uh, I think of the books that he and Jack Granistein wrote, for example, just the, the knowledge there. So a great person to be working with. But I think that you were looking at prime minister, both domestic and international, whereas what you've done, Patrice, is just look at the prime ministers in terms of foreign policy, and you used various questions. Tell me about how you came up with uh, your assessment criteria, Patrice, for your uh, ranking. Well, I'm very much inspired by the work that uh, Stephen Atzi and, and Norman Hilmer did. And I was uh, contemplating the manuscript one night, and I said, geez, I've got these 15 people uh, who you know I, I could appeal to. Uh, what if I asked them what they thought uh, about ranking prime ministers in terms of their foreign policy? A little sub subunit of what Stephen and, and Hilmer had done. 
Um, I use the themes of the book. The theme is statesmen, strategists, and diplomats. I see the performance of prime ministers, and I, this is a theme that I've picked up, uh, I've developed in, in my other books. I sort of see three broad categories on which to measure performance, which is very difficult. I mean, and, and this, 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 this idea of ranking, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very fun game. It's a game. I mean, it's very difficult. It's almost, it's almost impossible to say, you know, Johnny McDonald was better than Pierre Trudeau, or that Pierre Trudeau was better than Brian Mulroney, or that, you know, Lester Pearson was better than Diefenbaker. They all live in different times. They face different challenges. They respond differently. It's very difficult, but it's a heck of a lot of fun, especially if you have a glass of wine in your hand and you're really looking for a topic, a conversation. And, you know, so I've got these 15 people. I have a theme statesmen, strategists, and diplomats, if there's a way the prime ministers shape foreign policy, it's that. How do they shape structures? I mean, it, it's, it's very important. Um, you know, do, do they increase the military budget? Do they decrease it? Do they increase the, the, uh, the complement of staff at the Washington Embassy? You've mentioned it. Do they increase the staffing at external relations or global affairs? Uh, how much are they spending on uh, international development? Those are structural issues, budgets, departmental structures, the bodies around the prime minister, I'm thinking in terms of the PCO, the Privy Council office, or the staff uh, at PMO, the prime minister's office that is dedicated uh, to foreign policy. How do these prime ministers shape structures? The second one is how do they shape policy? That That is something that we, there's a lot of writing about. And last but not least, how do they shape their diplomacy? How do they perform as individual diplomats? Some people were excellent. And I think that in Canada, by and large, we've had some pretty excellent diplomats as prime ministers. But that's three dimensions on which to evaluate prime ministers. And so I structured my little, my little survey of among 15 people based on those three themes of the book. As, 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 as statesmen, in the sense of the shaping the state, in terms of strategy and in terms of diplomacy. And so it was a quick thing on the internet. Uh, people like Stephen could quickly go through the, the list, 10 questions. And I basically asked them, how did each prime minister perform on structures, on policy, and in terms of diplomacy? And we got some really interesting results. <laughs> we got some interesting results, no, I think. You, you did get some interesting results. So why don't you share with the, and again, spoiler alert, I want you to read the book, but um, uh, yeah. I I'm not going to give everybody the answer. So <laughs> give us a sense of at least sure. the, the top line results, which Happy I found to do quite that. interesting. Happy to do that. Uh, there are different winners in terms of, of, of um, the various categories, but I'm, uh, I, I'll, 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 and I, again, I urge people to read it, but here's the winners. The winners were, drum roll, Louis Saint Laurent followed by Mackenzie King. And here's why. Louis Saint Laurent by a nose. Uh, again, a forgotten prime minister, unfortunately. There's a great book on that. You can, you can, your listener, our listeners can listen to, can go buy it or borrow it. Um, this Louis is Saint the book that you have done. Yes. I know that both you and Stephen contributed to <laughs> yes. uh, the yes, book on Saint Laurent. You. And you also wrote a, a very good piece recently. I think it was in the uh, National Post. Yes. Uh, well, thank you. Saint Laurent. The well, he, yeah, because he it was this was the 50th anniversary this summer of his uh, of his passing away in 1973. Louis Saint Laurent wins uh, in the estimation of the colleagues um, because a 
uh, he really um, devoted a great deal of attention to the structures. He made sure that good people were uh, in positions at external affairs. He boosted the budget for the military. Uh, in terms of strategy, a realist, I mean, this is a very good example of how realism blends itself with multilateralism. You could hardly say that Louis Saint Laurent was a hard-nosed realist. This is the guy who launches international development assistance. At the same time, this guy is, is unconditionally a Cold War uh, militant. He is anti-communist. He will engage Canada in the Korean War. Uh, he does not like communists. He will lend support in various parts to the Americans. He is a Cold Warrior. So in terms of policy, he was effective. He, this is the guy who supports Lester Pearson in his mission to create the uh, Blue Helmets, the United Nations uh, peacekeeping force. It's, it's not a trivial thing. Uh, and in terms of his diplomacy, let's not forget, and, and Greg Donahue wrote a wonderful chapter in the, my book on Louis Saint Laurent uh, on the international tour, the first international tour of a prime minister. When Louis Saint Laurent goes to Europe, and then he goes down to India, and he goes down to uh, Japan, uh, and you know, winds up the first prime minister to go around the world. Uh, celebrated everywhere. He he visits, uh, the, he, he will give an address to the Indian parliament in 1954. I mean, nobody's ever done that since. I don't think Stephen can correct me on that. Uh, I don't think anybody else has done it. Uh, so in terms of his contribution to the structures of foreign policy, his policy, the, 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 the crafting of policy, and, and not least his diplomacy, he comes in number one, but he edges Mackenzie King by a nose. Mackenzie King, mostly because of his mastery of, of, of relations in the Second World War. Again, that North Atlantic Triangle uh, where he is maneuvering between Churchill and Roosevelt to make sure that Canada's interests are not lost, uh, participating actively and getting his staff I mean, the staffing issue, the structure here is important. The way he promoted excellent people in the external affairs hierarchy, people like Pearson, people like Norman Robertson, Hume Rong. These are the legends of the external affairs uh, pantheon. Uh, this is all his doing. And then as a diplomat, the man carries himself fairly well. Uh, so Louis Saint Laurent wins, Mackenzie King, very, very close. On, in terms of structures, you'll have other winners. In terms of policy, we have other winners. In terms of diplomacy, certainly uh, uh, Louis Saint Laurent is, ranks very highly. Mr. Mulroney ranks very highly. That's without a question. Uh, Pierre Trudeau ranks fairly high. Uh, Trudeau ranks fairly high in terms of his diplomacy, much less well in terms of his um, uh, policy making abilities or in terms of his contribution to structures. Mr. Chrétien is another good example where I think that his diplomacy uh, by all measures was highly effective, whether it was the Americans, the Team Canada uh, initiatives, his relations with France at a time when Canada needed France over the, the referendum issue. I think that 
Mr. Chrétien was highly effective. He loses a lot of points on structure. We cannot lose sight of the fact that under Mr. Chrétien, for all sorts of reasons that are probably understandable, Canada's uh, efforts in diplomacy are slashed. There's a 40% cut at uh, external affairs. Our military is, I'm going to use the word impaired. Um, and our peacekeeping abilities are basically eliminated through those years, almost eliminated. So in terms of the structural contribution, Mr. Chrétien ranked much, much lower, and that dragged down his score. Uh, but that gives you a, again, and I emphasize in all modesty, this is a survey of 15 people. Hopefully I can, I can muscle my friend Stephen Atzi to do another survey with hundreds of people that will involve all sorts of uh, diplomats, uh, historians, political scientists, and, and do a really serious job. But I still think that among our 15 people, we have a representative group of experts. Uh, and at the very least, now we have something to talk about at the next cocktail party. Bringing together groups like this is really Patrice's, uh, one of his many fortes. Uh, it was a really impressive group. Um, and I, I was so, having been involved in two of his projects now, I was so impressed that uh, I was putting together a project on prime ministers and their cabinets. And I thought the person I want to co-edit this with me is Patrice. Uh, because I knew he would be he would be effective in identifying people and bringing together a group of people that could get along and work together and and bring some insights. And actually, that book is um, at, with the publisher now. It's received rave uh, reviews from the experts, and we're just waiting. We're waiting for a contract. But waiting for a out, contract. Yeah, it should be out well, next well, Stephen, year. Stephen, come back and send it draft because it's it's the kind of thing that we, we'd be uh, delighted to to look at because. I do think the cabinets play a, a, a role and in also including in foreign policy. And, you know, arguably foreign policy, uh, most ministers now have a group within their department uh, that, that looks basically at foreign policy, not just finance, which has always played a critical role, but you think fisheries, of course, immigration, uh, environment, you can go across the board where, uh, and a lot of it is relationships with the United States but it's increasingly international just because, again, of that balancing uh, that you point out in your book that uh, we have a preponderant relationship with the United States, but we balance it through multilateralism, which I think has served Canada well. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, let me start with you on this one. What makes a prime minister good at foreign policy? You've talked about, and you're working on your book on cabinets and prime ministers, but uh, because you've looked at prime ministers as well. so. And I'm going to let Patrice will come back in on this, although he's already given us a fair bit of what makes a prime minister good at foreign policy, talking about, for example, Saint Laurent and assembling a good cabinet, letting his ministers lead and, and having a sense of vision. And certainly, uh, I still think the seminal speech for Canadian foreign policy is the great lecture that Saint Laurent gave when he was foreign minister, of which people like Pearson had a hand in, Escott yeah. Reed and the rest. I would say a key part of that is understanding the world. You would think that all our prime ministers would have a strong understanding of world affairs, but they don't. Uh, so understanding the world and Canada's place in it, where is it that Canada can make a difference? And having a vision, uh, you, can't, you can't really make a difference if you don't know where you're going to take things. Uh, and then of course, the ability to execute is, is crucial. All right, well, let me just explore that a bit. When you say understanding the world of recent prime ministers, who do you think came in with a good understanding of the world or left with a, a better understanding of the world? Oh, isn't that a good question? Um, Mulroney understood, uh, understood very well the United States. 
which was the most is the most important part uh, of Canada's place in the world. So I would I would identify him on that. I think Chrétien um, Chrétien had a magical understanding of domestic politics, but less sure feel of international affairs. But he, the other thing about Chrétien is he was able to learn from his mistakes. So I think he developed a stronger uh, understanding of the world as he went on. I think Paul Martin came with a very strong understanding of, of world affairs. Um, his father was foreign minister. In fact, as I point out in the book, Paul Martin is the only Canadian prime minister who had his birth timed around an international event. Um, his <laughs> labor, his mother's labor was induced so that he'd be born early so his father could get to a League of Nations meeting in Geneva. Uh, so from the moment, literally from the moment of his birth, Paul Martin's life revolved around international affairs. No, and you, what you've just underlined, Stephen, is something which is, I think, brings the book alive. And it's these little vignettes that you've been able to come up with. And I think, Therese, I think you came up with the one about uh, Borden picking up David Lord George by his lapels to make a point. I mean, this is what makes this such an interesting book, because it's not just sort of dry history or politics, it's living history with the, the lovely sort of anecdotes and vignettes that you've been able to bring in, that just as you've described, Stephen, about the birth of Paul Martin, as they used to call him, Junior. <laughs> well, Stephen Harper um, seemed to almost have disdain for international affairs. But there were certain things he understood. He understood Russia better than I think a lot of people did. He understood what was happening in Belarus, for example, uh, and Ukraine better than a lot of people did. And I think in some ways, Stephen Harper's understanding of international affairs looks better on retrospect than it did at the time. What would you say about his understanding of Israel? Because he took certainly a, a strong stand on Israel, anti those who oppose uh, Israel and, and Jews. I mean, he's, this was certainly something that he made a, a key part of his foreign policy and bringing in sort of the, the Office of Religious Affairs for was another piece of what he did. Yes, it's interesting. When he visited Israel, one of my students at the time was a journalist, uh, I won't mention the name, who, who traveled with Harper to Israel. And I asked later, what, what is it about Israel for Harper? Is this politics? He said, not at all. Uh, Stephen Harper feels this viscerally. This is deep down in his core, this support for Israel. It's not about winning votes from Jewish voters in Montreal or, or Toronto. But no, this I is where- that's, that's true. Certainly the, I remember listening to a speech he gave in Canada about the, the sort of anti-Israel and the rest. And I thought it, it really was, as you say, visceral and straight from the heart. But I think there's another element here that needs to be remembered. And again, it illustrates the link between personal diplomacy and policy. It's not just Canada that uh, affects a deeper rapprochement with Israel. You also see it in Western Europe. You see it in Japan, uh, Italy, France, Britain, all the countries, uh, almost all the countries in Western Europe tie themselves to Israel a great deal more, more willing to be defensive in, def in the defense of Israel in light of the various intifada uh, that are taking place there. So it's not just it's not just uh, Mr. Harper's personal diplomacy here. There was a general trend um, of warming relations with with Israel at that particular time, and that cannot be that cannot be forgotten. It's important. But you know, Stephen's point though about about knowledge, personal knowledge is very important and we've been fairly lucky in this country to have prime ministers who had some experience with 
with uh, foreign powers in, in the past. Johnny McDonald's a good example. I mean, he he had been in talks with Britain uh, from the 19, from the 1850s uh, through the negotiations around Confederation. He was not new at this game uh, when the, it came time to negotiate the Treaty of Washington uh, in 1871. Laurier was completely ignorant. In contrast, Laurier had never left the borders of Canada, uh, had never really pronounced himself uh, in terms of foreign policy. And yet, and yet, once he's released onto the world in 1897 and attends the Imperial Conference, you know, he's a superstar. You know, the Brits just go nuts for this guy, this French Canadian who speaks English like the best of them, who declares himself, you know, loyal to Queen Victoria, uh, and who who's just magical. I mean, he becomes the first, and then he goes to Paris, and of course the French are just elated to see this 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 this, this francophone, this Canadian Francais, uh, speak in their language on behalf of a, a country that is part of the British Empire. It's it's a it's a magical thing. Borden had lived in the United States for two years as, as a teacher. He knew the Americans. He holidayed in the Americans. Mackenzie King worked for the Rockefellers. Right. Uh, Bennett had worked uh, had, well as a businessman, had worked uh, with British uh, businessmen, less with the Americans, but still. Uh, Louis Saint Laurent, not really known as, I mean, he's a man who had traveled a great deal personally. He knew Europe very well. He, he was fortunate. I mean, he had the money necessary to take the kids and the family to Europe on a regular basis. But more importantly, was a was a lawyer to many American corporations doing business in, in, in Canada. Diefenbaker, much, much less. Diefenbaker is very much a small town lawyer and really not comfortable with the personalities around him. And he feels really besieged by it. And I think he's very uncomfortable. Pearson, what can we say? The man was the ultimate international Canadian. He's really comfortable. Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, very comfortable uh, in foreign capitals. Uh, Mr. Mulroney, working for an American multinational, fairly comfortable and got better and better with every year that passed. Mr. Chrétien, we've talked about, and again, we, 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 we won't end up in a situation with Mr. Harper, who is decidedly uh, much less uh, comfortable international capital. And, and, and to, to echo what uh, Stephen was saying earlier about uh, Paul Martin, Paul Martin, who in his years as Minister of Finance, uh, literally glowed uh, mm -hmm. on the uh, international circuit uh, among ministers of finance. Mr. Trudeau younger, uh, Trudeau fils, Justin Trudeau, uh, I think surprisingly uh, you know, personally, di diplomatically uh, at ease in world capitals because he'd basically grown up in that world. Um, his foreign policy, however, I think is is not been, let's just say, not up to stuff as far as I'm concerned. I, again, uh, he ranked very, very poorly uh, in our survey. No, Stephen, would you agree with that assessment on Mr. Trudeau? I'm I'm more inclined to be favor. I'm inclined to be a bit more favorable than Patrice. Um, I think I think that saving NAFTA uh, was a major accomplishment of this government. Yeah, dealing I... dealing with the incredible turmoil that, that Donald Trump threw into the international environment uh, required some some very strong skills, and I think Justin Trudeau showed that. I'd agree with that, and certainly my assessment would be that he got the one thing he had to get right right, which was the yes. U.S. relationship, the bromance with Obama. Yes, we saw that. But then dealing with Trump, he remakes his cabinet. And I give obviously a lot of credit to then Foreign Minister 
Freeland. Yes. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's the prime minister, which is one reason why I would probably rank Gretchen higher because people think uh, Lloyd Axworthy, who did do a superb job, the human security agenda, but uh, as my friend Bob Pamino points out, and certainly my discussions with both uh, Mr. Axworthy and Mr. Gretchen, that is Mr. Axworthy uh, certainly uh, pays tribute to Mr. Gretchen for giving strong backing, particularly when it came to the Landmines Treaty, which we now take for granted, but at the time was no sure thing. And let's not forget the fisheries. No. Canadian no, foreign right. policy is always about fisheries. Yes, going right back to 1867 <laughs> and beyond. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, my last question, and I'll, I'll start with you, Stephen. Does competence in foreign policy translate into domestic credit? No, I would say not. I don't think there are any votes in foreign policy, but I would flip it on the other side on, on to the other side and say incompetence in foreign policy can bring domestic discredit. Uh, so you, you dare not um, get it wrong because it can really damage uh, the government, the government standing publicly. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier Paul Martin on ballistic missile defense. The waffling on that issue, I think, right. led to the image of Paul Martin as a dither. Um, but if you get it, and you right, go back to Diefenbaker on Bomark and nuclear. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. But getting it right doesn't bring you any votes. I don't think Canadians are thinking the way that an American voter might about the, the leader's foreign policy credibility. I'm much in agreement with my good colleague, but I think there's <laughs> we, we tend to underappreciate the the backbeat of foreign policy. Uh, in the way Canadians evaluate their prime ministers. Um, you know, Alexander Mackenzie, to bring, uh, to bring back the, the prime minister uh, from 1874 to 1878, was unable to do anything, uh, to negotiate a, dream, a, a treaty with the United States, uh, to get Canada out of this painful depression that it was in, economic depression, and he was punished at the poll. So what, what Stephen Atsy is saying is, is very much, you know, he was punished. Uh, McDonald did well, and was consistently reelected. Let's not lose fact, lose sight of the fact that he was elected six times with majorities. Laurier did very well, except in 1911, when on two foreign policy initiatives, he was terribly punished. He was defeated uh, on, 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 on the, the Canadian Navy and on reciprocity. Even though a lot of people supported it, a lot of people did not like it. Uh, I think that Robert Borden was defeated because of the terrible toll of the First World War. Um, Mackenzie King did well in 1945 because of his support for the United Nations. Uh, I think that um, by and large, Louis Saint-Laurent did well, except, except Perhaps he went too far in speaking against Great Britain in 1956. And France. And France. And, you know, maybe he went too far in criticizing these, these old imperial powers daring to get involved in the Middle East. You know, the old colonial days are over, he's saying. I think that there, there, is, a, there is somewhere in the back of the mind of a lot of Canadians that the way Canadian prime ministers behave does matter. It may not be the most decisive factor, with the exception of the election of 1911 and maybe the election of 1988 uh, over free trade, uh, when Mr. Mulroney uh, uh, faced off against uh, the liberal uh, under liberals under John Turner. But it does matter. It always matters. I hope it keeps mattering. Let's not forget that we had our first debate on foreign policy in 2015, and I hope that we bring it back because at the end of the day, the prime minister is the most decisive person. The prime minister is the 
individual who sets policy more than anybody else. And we need to know what the views of those people are on foreign policy. And you've just underlined the theme of the book that prime ministers and foreign policy uh, make a difference and prime ministers do play a big role in, in foreign policy. The most policy. important role, the most important. Yes. All right, my, my final question then, Patrice, why don't you start on this one? What are you reading or streaming these days? I love this question, Colin. And I, <laughs> I you know, one of, so one of the things I, I just finished reading, so I'm, I'm, I'm between two things. I just finished reading the September, October issue of Foreign Affairs. Um, it's something I always read, but this last issue, I, I gosh, I read it practically word for word. It's chock full of articles on Russia, on China, artificial intelligence, uh, Erdogan. I mean, it's just, oh, it was a fantastic issue of foreign affairs, the September and October issue. So I just finished that. And now I'm reading, and this might've been a book that one of your previous hosts uh, might have recommended. Uh, it's called Sinistan, uh, China's Inadvertent Empire. It's written by Raffaello Pantucci and the late Alexandros Peterson. This is a study of how the Chinese government is really extending its influence in the former territories of Imperial Russia. We're talking about Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. And the way the Chinese have, using the Belt and uh, Road Initiative, various investments in infrastructure have really occupied the vacuum left by the Russians uh, in 1991 and are really sinking deep roots into these territories. It, it wasn't until I, I read this book that I I was reminded that China actually has a border with Afghanistan. It's a small mm -hmm. mountain pass, but it's there. Anyway, it's a very sensitive region geopolitically. And uh, as a China watcher, I'm always interested in these books. And anyway, Sinistan, uh, it's a gripping account, and I would strongly recommend it. All right, Sinistan. I'm, I'm just finishing uh, Robert Kaplan's new book, The Loom of Time, about the greater Middle East. And he talks a, a lot of what you're talking about, about China's influence through Belt and Road in yep. that the back of beyond, as Fitzroy McLean used to call it. So great suggestions. Thank you for both of them. Foreign Affairs, Current Issue, and Sinistan. Uh, Stephen, what are you reading or streaming? In the summer, I always read fiction. So I'm just finishing up. My summer's coming to an end. So I'm <laughs> finishing up uh, The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich. Uh, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Uh, she's a Chippewa from, from Minnesota. And the book is about uh, the dispossession of her people in the 1950s. But it's not, um, it's not a political tract. It's, it's masterful storytelling with really strong characters. And I'm, I'm almost done, but I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and then because the academic year is starting, I've begun uh, my nonfiction reading. So I'm reading Jonathan Malloy's The Paradox of Parliament, I've just started it. I've assigned it to uh, the students in my graduate class, uh, which starts on Monday. So I have to read this very quickly to, so that I've read it before they get to it. Uh, but Jonathan Malloy is a, a senior Canadian political scientist who's written extensively on, on Canadian politics. So I'm looking forward to reading the book. All right. So the paradox of Parliament and the Night Watchman? That's right. Yes, perfect. All right. The great, uh, great suggestions from you. And again, uh, this is this part of the program notes I'm consistently told by people is what they're most interested in is what are other people reading sometimes they say they get tired of the podcast go right to the notes to find the reading list so thank you thank you gentlemen and thank you for listening to this episode of the global exchange 
We were joined today by Patrice Dutil and Stephen Aziz, and their book is Statesmen, Strategists and Diplomats, Canada's Prime Ministers and the Making of Foreign Policy. It's a great read, so buy it. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go to our producer, to Joe Calnane, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. <laughs>